This is Looking Closer. I'm Jeffrey Overstreet, and I am recording today without an outline or notes or a plan because I'm in a hurry. I want to share with you the conversation I had with filmmaker Chad Hardigan, and his new movie, Little Fish, is available for rental on streaming platforms this week. I want you to get to it as soon as possible. So, thus, my lack of investment in preparation for this podcast. Um, Before I get into the movie itself, let me just say that the subject of memory has been on my mind a lot lately, in part due to the pandemic. How can we have any conversation right now without bringing that up? I'm sure in the future, people will listen to this episode or look back at the episodes that came out around this time and go, man... He couldn't stop talking about the pandemic. Pandemic this, pandemic that. It's like, well, yeah, that that was pretty much foremost on everybody's mind all the time here during 2020 and 2021. But it has given me surprising perspective on many things. And the subject of memory comes up a lot. In conversation, we ask each other, do you remember the last time that you blank something that we can't do, at least easily now, during lockdown. Um, Can you ever remember blank? Like, for example, can you ever remember the campus here at Seattle Pacific University being so quiet all the time? And it's true. It's like, it's almost like a ghost town around here while school is in session because so many things are closed and there are so many limitations on social interaction. Sometimes, though, I wonder what a time like this is doing to memory. It's my... Uh, default, really, to spend a lot of time on screens, interacting with people, watching things, doing things to pass the time rather than going outside. Or uh, There's just so much involved in masking up and figuring out where to go and what places are going to have restrooms open, etc. I'm spending so much more time on screens than ever. And because of that, because of my uh, constant engagement with a device, um, I am not forming new memories. I am not doing more imaginative work. I am not being quiet and reflecting. I am not doing the kinds of things that embed my experiences in my memory. And I think there will be a cost. There will be a cost of that. Hold on just a moment here. I'm moving my laptop away from my microphone. I am doing this, like I said, in a hurry, and I'm forgetting some things. Like, when my laptop is too near my microphone, you can hear the fan roaring, because apparently it takes quite a bit of energy uh, for my laptop to run this recording program. Um, All right. Memory. The subject of memory... Uh, has been very important to uh, my wife Anne and I for many reasons. We've had family members struggling with dementia. We've had um, we've had memory-related challenges due to uh, the dramatic experience that my wife had uh, with emergency brain surgery, and in the recovery from that surgery, which went very very well. If you don't know the story. Uh, led to a season where she was on painkillers to recover from the surgery, and that led to an eventual sort of fogginess uh, of memory about that season of her life. Memory was already an important subject for me in the arts because it comes up so often directly in storytelling, but also 
as I write fiction, I find that so much of what I am writing is drawn from memory, whether I am giving it to a character or um, being very direct about it in an essay. Memory was very much on my mind and Anne's mind when we got married almost 25 years ago because I had been reading Walker Percy and he has some wonderful insights on the subject of memory and images and how when we focus on photography, when we focus on video, when we focus on capturing images of things, it's very easy for the images, the images themselves to become what, what we remember rather than the sensory experience of the actual event. And for that reason, we decided, the two of us, not to allow anyone to video our wedding. Because we knew that if we saw the video, in the future we would very likely remember the event um, as it appears in the video rather than as we experienced it. And even saying that, when I think of my wedding, I find that the images that come to my mind are photographs I have seen of the wedding far more vividly than my own memories of them. Memory seems like a very sacred, intimate thing, and I think it needs to be treated very, very carefully. I want to remember the most extraordinary events, my, my most uh, surprising and life-changing experiences of grace. I think of how you know, stories from the Old Testament tell us that the Israelites would build altars at places where God was faithful to them. And eventually a teacher pointed out to me that this was so, as they journeyed, they could look back and point to high places where they built altars and always have a visual reference point of God's faithfulness to them. Uh, so they would remember it uh, when they were in the valleys, where they, when they were in those difficult places where God didn't seem to be doing anything at all. It's important to create those monuments uh, of memory for ourselves so we remember what is possible, so we remember um, God's grace, so we remember the things that can give us hope during those times when it's easy to forget. These are the kinds of things I think about when I think about memory. But when I think about the subject of memory, I also think about those works of art that have made memory a focus and that have helped me to appreciate just what a complex capacity it is. Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind, of course, an extraordinary science fiction comedy about lovers who have memories of each other deleted so they don't have to suffer from that devastating breakup. And the movie goes on to explore just how much harm they are doing to themselves by deleting inconvenient memories of suffering. I think of Christopher Nolan's Memento about the man with uh, memory problems who has to tattoo on his own skin the things that have happened to him so that when he wakes up in the morning, he will know who he is, he will know the danger he's in, and he will know what to do to take the next step to evade that danger. And now, here, in the middle of the pandemic, we have a brand new movie about a pandemic and about memory. Chad Hartigan's new film, Little Fish, is about lovers in a dangerous time, to borrow a phrase from the great singer-songwriter Bruce Coburn. It's about Emma, 
played by Olivia Cook, who you may have noticed in Sound of Metal and Ready Player One, and Jude, played by Jack O'Donnell. You may know O'Donnell from movies like 71, 300 Rise of an Empire, or Jungle Land. I first saw him all the way back in 2006 when he was in a movie called This is England. In Little Fish, Emma and Jude are passionately in love, and they are trying to figure out a way to hold on to each other, to their relationship, and to their past, which gives them their present. The pandemic in which they find themselves, and which is spreading rapidly without any apparent cure, attacks the memory directly, and all around them people are losing their sense of identity, losing their personal histories. Worried that they are vulnerable to this virus, they are wondering how do they preserve this relationship, this one-of-a-kind love that they are experiencing. It is an intimate drama in the midst of a wild science fiction debacle that reminds me of the, uh, the chaos, uh, the calamity that seemed relentless in the movie Children of Men. Little did Chad Hartigan know when he was working on the film that it would be released during a pandemic, one in which things would be unfolding in, in ways so similar to what happens in the movie, it's just uncanny. When you see characters wearing masks, when you see characters lining up uh, in the hope of, of a vaccine or a cure, when you see conspiracy theorists on the streets waving signs about how the government has the answers and, and is manipulating the public in the middle of the crisis, it just all seems a little too familiar. But the story takes some unexpected turns. And I'm not going to spoil them for you because this movie is brand new and I want you to have a chance to experience it yourself. Before I do, though, I want to say that Chad Hartigan's movies have built a certain kind of trust for me. I stumbled onto his films. I was uh, at home folding laundry, and I clicked on a movie I didn't know anything about called This Is Martin Bonner, starring Paul Einhorn. And I very quickly stopped what I was doing and became absorbed in this intimate drama about a man who becomes a counselor to, a man, to another man who is just coming out of years of incarceration and trying to figure out how he's going to find his way uh, meaningfully with this second chance, uh, second chance on life in the real world outside the jail. Their conversations were so absorbing, so human, that I felt this film was giving me the rare privilege of meeting three-dimensional characters and learning from them in a remarkable circumstance. What's more, the lead character, Martin Bonner, is a man of faith, or a man in a crisis of faith. He has been uh, a church uh, finance manager, basically, and he has suffered a crisis of faith. Now here he is trying to be an encouragement to a man coming out of jail looking for meaning and purpose in the world. The two of them end up having a tremendous influence on one another as they are both sort of starting over. This is Martin Bonner became one of my favorite films of the last decade. Then Chad Hartigan made Morris from America, another story about starting over. Craig Robinson stars as a man who is coaching soccer in France, and his son, played by a young actor named Marquise Christmas, 
makes the move with him and has to find his place in this new culture, which is a very challenging thing for him. But he does. He does find his way as a very young rapper. That, too, is a very surprising and intimate drama, uh, full of big laughs and big crises. I hope you will seek it out. It turned into quite a crowd-pleaser. In fact, both of these films are films that I recommend enthusiastically to my friends, and I have actually shown uh, This Is Martin Bonner in a film seminar that I taught at the Glenn Workshop a couple of years ago, and I even welcomed Chad Hartigan to that seminar via Skype to answer questions uh, for those who were in attendance. I'm grateful for that experience and for the conversations I've had with him. That is what made what you are about to hear possible. So here, upon the release of Little Fish, I am excited to share with you my conversation about Little Fish, This is Martin Bonner, Morris from America, The Pandemic, and my ongoing fascination with questions about memory. Here is my chat with Chad Hardigan. I hope you enjoy it. Well, it is a joy to talk to you. Um, I feel such gratitude whenever I see your name because um, when I think back over a, the last decade of films, you know, it's easy to think of sort of the big landmark films that brought audiences together all over the place. But I tend to have a special place in my heart for those, those films that might slip past people um, that I can then introduce to them and it becomes part of our shared vocabulary. I'm confident that they will love it. I think the first film that felt that way to me uh, was Tom McCarthy's The Station Agent. Um, which a lot of people missed the first time, but the, the rewatchability of that little film and the places those characters have, you know, take up in my heart and my imagination. And it's, it's a pretty special movie. Yeah. When this, when I first saw this is Martin Bonner, um, I remember, I remember exactly what I was doing. I was literally folding laundry in my living room. And, uh, I, as it was meant to be seen. <laughs> <laughs> And I put it on and um, very quickly stopped folding laundry. <laughs> and as soon as it was over, I couldn't wait. I just, that impulse to run out into the street and, and, and go, go all evangelical, as I like to say about it. Um, although that word gets complicated, doesn't it? Um, what, what a remarkable film. And those, the two performances at the heart of it, bringing those two characters to life, not just in dialogue, but just in the most exquisite expressions and chemistry. Um, you, the three films I know you for are, are all so different. And yet that is a, that is a commonality. That is a um, sort of a core of your work seems to be uh, what is possible between two actors um, when you have such strong, distinctive writing, such strong characterization? Uh, that's at the heart of this is Martin Bonner, Morris from America, and now Little Fish. And yet the films are so wildly different. And I'm thinking that may be something else that becomes a distinction for you as a filmmaker is just how we never know what to expect. Where, whereas, I mean, I don't want to pick on him, but I kind of knew what to expect when I started watching I'm thinking of ending things uh, that, that yeah. Charlie Coffin. You kind of know yeah. where you're going with him. I'd, I'd love to ask you, especially since this was 
if I'm not mistaken, the first time you you were working, you were adapting somebody else's story and leaning heavily on another writer, even in the adaptation. Um, how was this different for you? And does it feel to you while you're working on it, or maybe in retrospect, as another step in the same journey as a storyteller? Yeah, well, I didn't write the, the script at all. Um, it is based on a short story, mm-hmm. but um, was adapted into a script by a guy named Mattson Tomlin. So, so um, I didn't have anything to do with the writing at all, uh, except for giving him some notes once I came on board as a director and I've been working on it with Jack and Olivia a little bit. Um, so yeah, very different, very, very different. But, uh, you know, This is Martin Bonner is a small film, small, quiet, film and it won an award at Sundance and won an award at the Independent Spirit Awards but even still no one was going to offer me a big directing job in Hollywood from it Um, and then Morris from America in my mind as I was making it was also very art house I thought it was a subtitled coming of age movie about a chubby kid who humps his pillow and um, was going to be another uh, hard R-rated tough sell. And uh, just by the nature of Marquise and Craig's performances and their chemistry, it actually played like a crowd pleaser instead. And um, so that was like a very pleasant surprise for me. And all of a sudden, people in Hollywood did see me directing bigger things and they could draw a line from that movie to the stuff that they had in development. And so it felt like there were opportunities for me that I wasn't sure were ever gonna come around again because when left to my own writing devices, I, I, I always gonna sort of lean towards the smaller, more intimate, more idiosyncratic characters and, and pieces. So I just figured, yeah, let's, let's see what, what comes about of this. And I, I read a lot of scripts and took a lot of meetings and even got hired on a few jobs to direct things that did not end up happening, but were, were going to be bigger movies. And uh, yeah, just kind of spent the, the, the two years directly following Morris, trying to, to seize that opportunity. And, and then Little Fish was sent to me and I read it and I liked it. Uh, Why? I liked it for two reasons. One, uh, it was really well written and you could just see it as a movie. As you were reading it, the images were in your head or in, in my head. And I was in a, I felt a real urgency and a rush to get them out. I was like, these are going to be great. People, people need to see these, these scenes, these images. Uh, so I really wanted to make them come to life and not a lot of scripts read that way. And the other was, uh, I just related to the, the story in terms of, my girlfriend was pregnant at the time with our, our first kid. And uh, so there was a lot of love and optimism and, and joy. And like my, my world was sort of hyper-focused down to the two, two people, like my relationship, that was the most important thing. But meanwhile, the Brett Kavanaugh hearings were going on and um, mm-hmm. children were in cages on the border and, climate change was out of control. And it just seemed like if you ever stepped out of that bubble and turned on the news and looked outside, it was really a dark and 
gloomy place. Um, and something about the script really spoke to me about how people just try to like live their day-to-day -day life blocking out the horrors of the world um, until they're forced to confront them. And like the horrors of the world have a way of showing up at your front door and um, forcing you to deal with them. So I, I, I thought that the script spoke to me in that way and represented uh, what I was looking for. I was looking for something that I, A, I wouldn't write myself. Mm -hmm. Cause if I'm gonna do something I didn't write it might as well be something totally different than I would. Yeah. And was gonna be bigger, a bigger movie, a bigger challenge. Um, Test, testing myself in some genres and, and elements of filmmaking that I hadn't been tested in yet, but still remaining character driven and mm -hmm. remaining intimate and um, focused on people and their behavior. So checked a lot of boxes. I wanna get back to that, the idea of uh, the, the desire to do something bigger. Um, but uh, be before we go, before we get too far away from it, I, I kind of want to go back again to it. You, you, you said reading the story, you felt an urgency. People need to see these images. What can you give us an example? I mean, there, there are some very striking images in this film, and I'm curious to know if those are the ones that came directly from the story. What were the, what were the images that you wanted people to see? And, and I know artists are often reluctant to talk about what the, the why of things like that, but uh, does anything stand uh out to you? I'm not sure that I can remember any very specific things, but because because I meant more as a whole, like just as you're reading it scene by scene, you could just see it very clearly. And um, if I'm reading something and it's difficult for me to imagine, not just like what what does the finished product of this scene look like, but also it's hard to even imagine myself on the set, surrounded by the people explaining like how, how we would do the thing. Um, and that could be for a reason of like, I just don't know, or also I just can't see myself having the motivation to, to rally the troops around this particular scene. Those, those are like good indications that the script is not for me. Um, and it's just more that this one was very easy for me to picture myself executing, uh, or, or trying to execute these, these moments. Cause it, it just read the from scene to scene, I thought it was really smart how Matson uh, chose to tell the, the story, the, the scope of their entire relationship via small moments and small scenes and the scope of the entire apocalyptic world outside also told via small moments. And um, that was something that I could do. I wasn't intimidated at all by um, the idea of going big via small. It's like that's my that's my route to getting big. <laughs> it seems like uh, one of the ways in which your films are getting bigger, so to speak, is that Morris from America felt like such a big step because while this is Martin Bonner was about a character stepping out of incarceration into a world that you and we as moviegoers were very familiar with, uh, Morris from America took us to another took American viewers anyway to another culture. And I couldn't help thinking as I watched it, just how much more complicated that project must have been. Mm -hmm. uh, and yet how it always felt true to me. It always felt like this was really happening. And it took me back like, man, 
25 years to a European study tour I'd gone on in school and just how, how fish out of water I felt there. Um, and yet the, it didn't feel like another culture as imagined by a storyteller. It, it felt uh, genuine. Here, it's not so much that you've gone to another place as it is the, the place you're familiar with is, is, is coming to pieces. Uh, and you, you said, you know, sort of the, the news showing up at your front door, you know, as soon as you're done with this movie, well, there it is at your front door. Um, do you have a desire to keep going bigger, uh, carrying these? I mean, I have a feeling you're always going to have these sort of intimate relationships at the core of your movies. But do you have sort of an itch to go bigger, to do something um, on, a, on a grander scale next time? Are we going to see that as a progression in your, your work? Yeah, but it's more kind of a, as default because the desire is more for pe more people to see the movies. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, if you were guaranteed that a movie of the size of Morris for America or Little Fish would be seen by, you know, most of the country, or at least most of the country even have the opportunity to know about it, to, to decide if they want to see it or not, then I would happily stay in that realm but uh, but yeah, like the desire to have people see the stuff is is what sort of drags me towards bigger and bigger things. Um, so I I do want to keep growing uh, in terms of the size of the projects so that the audiences can grow. But I also have no ego or qualm about if I, if if I did a smaller movie next um, that wouldn't represent any kind of setback or anything for me. I gotta say, I have mixed feelings <laughs> because <laughs> I've seen, you know, uh, friends of mine, some friends of mine, um, Zeke Earl and, and Sam Caldwell made this little sci-fi movie called Prospect uh, that's on Netflix there where everything is handmade. I mean, there's a little bit of CGI here and there uh, just to sort of fill out the, the, the vision of that world, but so much of it is handmade and that movie really works because of the intimacy of uh, the two leads. Um, and uh, then uh, another of my favorite filmmakers, um, Lee Isaac Chung, I've been looking at his stuff for years and just, just so impressed by the intimacy of the, the actors, the characters, the chemistry in his films. He has this little movie called Lucky Life that hardly anybody has seen that I think is a Terrence Malick level achievement um, uh, with just incredibly um, um, nuanced human performances that reminds me a lot of your work and now I think he's signed on to this massive adaptation of the sci-fi movie Your Name um, and something in me just wants to protect Lee Isaac John <laughs> yeah. because I think what he has is so magical and so delicate in the same way um, I was really impressed with how I was I was skeptical you know going into sort of a dystopic sci-fi space with you uh, I was impressed by how I came away completely believing in this relationship again. Um, um, there, there's an element of mentorship uh, at the heart of your movies, I think. And even though this is a love story, it is two people trying to take care of each other, um, especially with Emma uh, trying, to, trying to save Jude. Mm -hmm. um, and I wonder where that comes from uh, for you, do you think? I, I mean, you... I know I can see a lot of parallels between your life story uh, and how uh, you have sort of had so many experiences of moving from one space to another, one culture to another, one, well, one worldview to another, so to speak. Mm -hmm. um, but I also wonder about that 
uh, how you seem so drawn to these stories of what is possible between two people when the teacher is willing to be taught, when the counselor is willing to learn. Um, yeah. Well, first, that comes from an experience. Uh, I'll, I'll, I'll try to answer that. But first, I, I want to go back and say that I agree with you. And, you know, when I read that Terrence Nance is going to make Space Jam 2, my first instinct is also to be like, that's a bummer for anyone that likes movies. Great for Warner Brothers, terrible for Terrence Nance. Um, <laughs> like they they got the best person they could get and and then and we get the worst Terrence Nance mm -hmm. movie we could get. Mm -hmm. So I, I also feel that way. And then uh, I also have thought about when like an example in 2017, I think it was Greta made Lady Bird and mm -hmm. Luca Guadagnino had Call Me By Your Name. Mm -hmm. And both those movies were surprise smashes and Oscar nominees and swept, swept the awards. So those two could have done anything they wanted. They probably were given keys to the kingdom and they both made remakes. They both, Greta did Little Women and, and Luca did Suspiria. And that could seem disappointing, but I know for a fact now that like they just they only make the movies they're gonna make. If if you uh, want to work in Hollywood and work in the system, you can't just like show up and be like, I want to make this movie. They're like, Well, we're making these. Do you want one of these? Um, and that's an unfortunate reality of the the business today. Um, and there are some exceptions, obviously, like if you get to be a Tarantino, a, a Christopher Nolan, or, um, you know, the, the Safdie brothers have an opportunity now. Um, there are there are exceptions, but um, but largely, Chloe, yeah, it's been... Chloe Zhao apparently is going to make a, a Dracula <laughs> movie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's like discouraging to know firsthand that like you can show up with success behind you and a, what you think is a great idea in front of you, but you'll still kind of just end up making the movies that they make. I mean, the, most of the studios have their release schedule for the next five years already set, even though they don't have anybody making those movies yet. They just know that there's a mummy movie coming out in 2024. We'll get somebody on it. Um, so anyway, uh, I'm trying to be I'm trying to also say that, yes, I agree, it's discouraging, but also um, that's the world that we live in, unfortunately. And then maybe maybe the Netflixes of the world are gonna change the paradigm and mm -hmm. you can make your cool, interesting 25, 40 million weird big movie there. I don't know, we'll see. Uh, and then about the character, the teachers and the mentors, that's a, it's not something I've ever thought about. So uh, I'm not sure if I could pinpoint it to anything in my own life other than I just have always loved stories of people trying their best and showing kindness and uh, trying to help each other, but often not knowing how they can be of help. Uh, and I, I didn't, know that that was what I was into I, or I couldn't verbalize that until this is Martin Bonner was already made and screening and people were telling me how much they appreciated seeing something where people were just being kind to each other and optimistic um, 
and I, I heard so often people say, I kept waiting for something terrible to happen and, and I'm so glad when it didn't in that movie that I realized that it's like, oh yeah, that's, that, that is what I was trying to do with this, these characters and this, this type of story. And um, I would like to continue trying to do that. Uh, so um, that's, that's the closest thing I, I had to a realization about what maybe is driving the fact that I keep returning to that. I was thinking about Jim Jarmusch's Patterson this morning and how when I, when I show that film to students in my creative writing class, they always comment that they were waiting for the big, for him to hit somebody with the bus. You know, that <laughs> we, we've, we're so conditioned by things we've already seen to expect certain predictable calamities. Um, and it felt, I, I mean, again, since this is an adaptation, I don't know how much of this uh, is uh, the, the, the story um, that you're working with and how much of it is what you've done with it but it felt like you were actively resisting the uh, cliches, the, the conventions of uh, apocalypse stories um, so that we would remain focused on these, these two uh, characters. Um, and yeah. and I, I wonder um, now with, uh, with it coming out in the, in the context of all this, just how, how much do you think the the context of the film's release is going to influence the experiences of people watching it, you know, differently than, than they would, than probably you were anticipating when you were making it. Yeah. And do you think I that's, mean, and I, are you encouraged by that or discouraged? I have, I have to assume that it, that it's 180 degrees different that people will be seeing it with eyes that I could never imagine. Um, it's very, very hard to imagine what it's like for someone watching it for the very first time now, uh, because we really thought of it when we were making it as a science fiction rooted romance film. And, and it was like a what if scenario and it, it involved a lot of imagination of like putting yourself in the shoes of these characters experiencing this insane circumstance. And, and we, deliberately tried to keep it very grounded and realistic and and tried to imagine what people really would do in that but but it was kind of like an old-fashioned movie in my mind it was an old-fashioned movie that was not trying to say anything about uh our world today it was just trying to tell a story and and um you like use your imagination to come up with a, a yarn and um so the fact that it, it then did a complete switch and became something so about today um, is was was actually very worrying for me at first because I was like this is probably like it, it's the exact opposite of what I thought it was now so yeah. how could it possibly still land correctly but uh, in fact it it seems to be received both in the way that we always hoped it would and in ways that we couldn't imagine. So it is probably ultimately been better for the film uh, because people can bring so much of their own experience into, into the story. It still feels like a, like a fictional um, 
escapist is not the right word, but it still feels like a movie that's uh, trying to take you away to movie land and not um, be about the, the real world, but uh, has enough real world parallels that, that people can more easily place themselves in the shoes of the characters. But um, I'm only basing that off of what I'm reading from people and, and um, mm -hmm. yeah. I think one of the reasons I connected with it, I've been thinking about this a lot too, I, and this may be particular to me, um, but you know, people responding to isolation differently. Um, I find myself less and less interested, at least during this season, in uh, the big epic uh, films. Uh, there's something about the, the smaller scale, that, that always sounds so, um, condescending and I don't I don't mean it that way at all but there, there's something that that gets larger with a with a you know more of a close-up right uh and that that expansiveness of a relationship um I'm I find myself drawn to uh cinema right now that is very intimate but that also has a sense of improvisation to it um it's like I maybe it's that everything feels so controlled right now everything has to be so locked down that I'm looking for uh, art that has this irrepressible spark of surprise and um, sort of breaking up what's expected. So I've been, I got, I recently rewatched the whole series Fishing with John just because I find it so human and just so funny and playful and improvisational and you have no idea what you're gonna get episode to episode. And then God bless America, suddenly we get painting with John and HBO Max, we get, we get, the return of that personality. Um, yeah, uh, I watched my dinner with Andre last night. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly. That's exactly what I'm talking about. Um, yeah. It felt like there may have been some, I mean, it, maybe this is a credit to the actors, but it felt like there was some improv going on in this film. Uh, their relationship seemed so spontaneous and I didn't know if I was watching two actors become very fond of one another or two characters. <laughs> actually don't think there was much improvisation really um, wow yeah if, if there was any it, a compliment it's, then. it's it's pretty pretty small um but they did have input and we did have a few days probably a week before we started shooting where we were all in vancouver already and we met every day and just talked about the scenes and quite a bit of what you would like a, a small amount of pages uh, were changed, but quite a large amount of what you would uh, use to describe the characters if you were, now that you've seen it, describing the characters to someone else. Like the, the things that you would end up talking about um, are things that we probably added last minute um, that just became very specific and, and unique to the actors. And um, so that's probably why it feels that way because it was kind of changed and, and tailored to them with their input and uh yeah like the the first draft of the script that i read the jude character um and this was before jack was involved read more like a pretty typical indie guy hero with like some charming quips and you know he's like smooth and and always knows what to say and uh, it was written well still, like I'm not trying to bash Manson at all, but uh, 
when when Jack became involved, we were like, let's let's find the more interesting version of this character. And Jack really wanted to latch onto the. There was only I think one line written in about how they used to party a lot and when they were in bands together, but now they are more relaxed. And he really wanted to latch onto that and be like, well, is he is he actually sober or is is he just like can he have one drink here or there? And we we just made like more concrete decisions about uh all these things about their characters and uh they both wanted to be smokers and uh that was controversial (laughs) um because not many people are smokers in movies anymore but i was like uh yeah let's go for it um they 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 really embraced trying to make the characters not the versions that are usually in the movie They're, they're they're the real people with um complicated coping mechanisms mm-hmm. uh that we get to see and and are just doing their best i've been talking with my fiction writing students about the the value of giving a character something inexplicable somehow mm-hmm. if it's the right thing it just it, it's what brings that character to life there's a great short story writer named jim heinen who has a phrase called the mystery of the incongruous um, and so I think I love that about them because people are like that. They, there's, there's, there's something that mm-hmm. brings an element of mystery and, and distinctiveness to that, that character. Um, I wonder, and this may be a bit philosophical, and I know sometimes filmmakers are reluctant to speculate uh, about uh, what's going on in the poetry of their work. So I'll understand if you, if you back away from this, but I'm sitting there thinking... All right, another another great film about memory, um, and one that seems very grounded in the here and now. And I'm wondering why we are drawn to stories about memory right now. And then I got to thinking, well, maybe it's not just memory. Maybe it's our the the connections we have to the authentic. So much of our experience is processed for us and experienced on screens, of course, and. You know, right now, Sound of Metal is a very big movie. And it's, it's just this simple idea of somebody losing their hearing. But for some reason right now, that is incredibly uh, energizing, affecting visceral experience for people. Um, why, why memory and why now? You know, I'm, I'm, is it that we are so prone to forgetting because we're so constantly distracted? My, I, I, not, I notice my classes are losing touch with film history and they even have trouble remembering sometimes what they've, what they've been watching for that matter. I had a student yeah. say the only, the only film she could write about for me was one she had seen two weeks earlier. Um, I think it was Black Box, the, the Sandra Bullock sci-fi thing. Mm-hmm. Blackbird. Black, yeah, Black Box. Black Box, yeah. Right, right, right. Bird Box. Bird Box, that's what it was. Um, and she said, well, it's, that's the only thing I can remember watching that. I I found that terrifying. Yeah. The idea that we are, we are uh, taking in so much that none of it is sticking. And so I, I wonder if, if there's something, um, particularly alarming about the, the idea of losing your memory or losing your immediate touch with what's around you right now, because that's, because we are losing that, um, I'm, I'm sure. I'm sure that that there is um, 
but you, you, you're right. That is, that's the kind of thinking that you tend to leave to the people uh, <laughs> after the movie is done and, and don't, don't allow yourself to get bogged down in too much thinking before the movie. But I, I certainly was interested in memory as both a concept in, in life and a, a concept for film. Like ever since I heard the fact that every time you remember something, you degrade the memory and um, that somebody rec recalling the same event for the first time in 10 years is, is recalling it clearer than someone who's maybe remembered it every year in the last 10 years, even though the person who remembers it every year will assume and, and insist that their version is more accurate. The person who has not thought about it at all will have the more accurate version. So I heard that once and, and then ever, ever since then I've always kind of been fascinated by memory and um, like, like Jude, I take photos of everything and, and I have a I have a particularly bad memory unless it's tied to a, a photo, mm. um, and I had also recently seen a, a documentary by Corita called Without Memory. Oh yeah, have you seen that? No, no, that's been in my queue for a while though because I love his work and I haven't seen a documentary by him yet. So yeah, well, it's only available in like a really bad VHS rip on YouTube. Um, because it was made for Japanese TV, I think. And, um, but, but I watched a, it. He has a new documentary though, right? Or a fairly recent documentary that is available, I think. He, he might, I don't know. Okay, anyway. Uh, but this one is about a guy, a Japanese guy who had an accident at work and he had to get brain surgery. Uh, and they messed up the brain surgery and he came out of it unable to make new memories. So every five minutes he forgets what just happened anything before the surgery he remembers permanently he says his wife he knows who his wife is he knows his kids he knows where he lives and he knows he can remember growing up everything but you just cannot make new memories and corita follows him for a year year and a half um where he still he lives with his wife and his kids and every five minutes he just becomes really confused the wife has to tell him again that he has this affliction and and every five minutes he relives the horror of realizing that he has this affliction. So it's a real tough watch, real heartbreaker. And yet somehow uh, also really uplifting and, and you know, the, the love that the wife has for him never fades. In fact, they go on to have an additional child um, even though he has this disease and so that was kind of fresh in my mind when I got the script. And I think uh, it, I, I, I was, of course, I also thought of Eternal Sunshine and I think that's a perfect movie. So on the one hand, I was daunted by the fact that I was like, well, Eternal Sunshine already exists. Like, do we need to make another movie about memory and love? And then on the other hand, there was this documentary um, that showed something that I felt like I, I, did, I had never seen anything like that before where, um, you know, someone, they were just trying to like keep moving forward even though he couldn't build anything new. They were just like coasting on the old memories and and just something else, their love. Like they were, they were, they were unable to build that love any deeper or stronger, but yet somehow they did. And um, 
So I, I, I thought, okay, maybe there's an opportunity. And, and then when I first met Matson, I brought it up. I was like, what about Eternal Sunshine? Like the, our movie also begins and ends on a beach even. Like it's yeah. very, very similar. And he was like, eh, that movie's like almost 20 years old now. We can do another one. Sure. And I was, I was also, I was kind of inspired by his unflappable confidence in that. And I was like, yeah, why not? Maybe there is room for another, another movie on the topic. There's a lot more going on in that movie as far as so many other characters and some of it is just yeah. really, really wacky. I mean, I love that film. Yeah. Um, but the, I actually found myself thinking more of the Sarah Polly film, Away From Her. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. You know, about how do you love someone who may very soon not even know who you are. Um, yeah. My wife and I are experiencing that right right now with her, her mother. Um, dementia is reaching that point where occasionally on a phone call, um, we can't find any, any common ground. And that's, it's, it's, it's devastating. And it really sort of sends you back to fundamental questions about what you value and why, and how are you going to make sense of your life in a, uh, when, this, when yeah. this kind of thing is staring you in the face. It's really, we need to keep going back to these questions. Um, and in, in regards to your student, I do think there's something, you know, something's happening generation, generationally that um, is having an effect. I, I, we have to leave it to the scientists to figure out. But I mean, the fact that nobody has to remember, we don't have to remember anything anymore. It's not required yeah. to remember a phone number, yeah. to remember a, yeah. a I know address. something because it's here yeah. it's on my device. Right. So um, surely that's doing something. Um, and I'm not, I'm not sure what, uh, and, but for movies, in particular, she probably just, like all of us, doesn't really watch them. Mm -hmm. you know, yeah. She's doing doing other things at the same time. And <laughs> Funny you should mention that. Uh, <laughs> a couple of days later, we watched Moonrise Kingdom, and I, I, I filled the board at the front of the classroom with notes, like character names. We started drawing connections between things. Fifteen minutes later, one of my students is sitting there slack-jawed and says, I just... I, I just, I don't understand what's happening. And I said, what do you mean? She said, I've never seen anyone spend so much time paying attention to something that they watched before. And we were 20 minutes into class. I'm like, guess what? We're spending the next three weeks on this movie. Um, so that, yeah, that's, that's a, but, but that, that's what school was for me. So I feel like it mm -hmm. is a great loss. Uh, yeah. We're losing something and I don't want to be just pessimistic. We're probably gaining something. I just haven't figured it out. Sure. Yeah. Um, yeah. So on, on another subject entirely, um, with this about to uh, find its audience in a way that you couldn't have imagined as you were shaping it, uh, what is creativity looking like for you uh, now? Um, as you're, you know, I'm always, it's always sort of disorienting for me to talk to a filmmaker about something I've just discovered and that's five years old yeah. for them. Um, What's, are, are there things that are exciting for you creatively about the challenges that you're facing right now? Um, or are you sort of planting seeds for things that you can do uh, once, Lord willing, we're out of this? <laughs> yeah, it's more that. I'm very happy and grateful that I had something in the can mm -hmm. um, because it took a very long time to get a, a movie going between shooting Morris and shooting this was uh four years four years so um 
if I, if like the pandemic had hit right before this shot and like that four years just kept getting added to, I think I would have, I would be having an existential crisis for sure right now. But the fact that I had finished something, it was going to come out and it was just a matter of sort of waiting for it to come out has staved off the feeling of slipping into oblivion. Um, but I haven't been all that productive um, in the lockdown. I've written some and I've read some scripts, um, but I do have a toddler. I have a new baby. That's right. A new release. So, yes. <laughs> yeah. So that's a good excuse to be unproductive. Thanks. Um, and I'm, I'm very lucky that my girlfriend has a good job and uh, has didn't lose her job and just now works from home. And uh, so financially, I'm okay to sit out the pandemic assuming it is you know gonna be the two years maximum let's say let's say a year and a half uh maximum i i would happily sit that out uh rather than try to go work on a set right now because it's one it's hard to, for me to imagine sets being fun right now because so much of them is that like camaraderie and the yeah. everybody getting together and feeling like a summer camp and to be all separated and and nobody can interact with people not in their zone sounds terrible so there's that and there's also until it's clear what the new normal is and looks like i i think it'd be hard to to make anything that was not a fantasy or a period piece but if it was just like a movie trying to be about normal stuff like having it be set during the pandemic and everyone's wearing a mask and addressing the pandemic or pretending the pandemic never happened or doesn't exist, both feel equally wrong. And I don't know what approach you would take to shooting a movie right now. Um, so I'd rather just kind of wait, wait and see and have the luxury to do so. Well, I really appreciate your your time and, and also just a, a beautiful work of art in the middle of all this. Um, it's those kinds of films have been a very sustaining, nourishing uh, lifeline uh, in the, the years since in a classroom, in a building I'm looking at right now, I, in the middle of the class, told them that they all had to leave the classroom right now, that we were going into lockdown. It's hard to believe. Uh, in some ways, it feels like a few months ago. In some ways, it feels like we've been here for years. Yeah. Um, I would like to ask, uh, sort of just in closing, um, what are the works of art that have been meaningful for you uh, during a, a, a very, and of course, it's not just the pandemic. I mean, let's mm -hmm. just face the fact that the last few years have been extraordinarily difficult and stressful and dark. Um, yeah. What have been the, what have been the, the sustaining works? Maybe, maybe not even just movies, but um, across your experiences with art that have, that have spoken to you during this time. Well, even before the pandemic, while we were editing Little Fish, I went and saw Booksmart in the theater and uh, I really enjoyed it, but I just, I enjoyed it so much. And then I enjoyed on top of that, how much I enjoyed the experience of going to see that movie. And so I just went back to the editing room and, and I wasn't like down on Little Fish or anything, but I was, you know, I was going back to edit my melancholy romance drama and I was like what's the point of making anything if it's not fun um, <clears throat> and so that really kicked off uh, a, a like pendulum swing where I just 
when I was watching things, I, I tended to choose light. And uh, then the pandemic hit and even more so, I, I, I spent a good amount of time rewatching uh, some of Nora Ephron's movies mm. and those are only getting better with age. Um, you know, re- doing a lot more rewatches than than watches, uh, and just trying to find movies that are comforting and breezy, uh, or have happy associations. And and it's not because I'm depressed or need uh, that type of outlet, but it's just seems like a, a good time to revisit favorites and and uh i've been inspired by the feeling of wanting to revisit a movie that made you feel really good and so i I think the next thing i do try to make uh will probably be in that zone like aiming to be something that uh is becomes someone's comfort movie there was some good morris from america energy in book smart i think now that i think about it I can totally see Morris showing up at one of the parties in that movie. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> maybe he's maybe, maybe I should I should I should see if I can get the rights and do a crossover. <laughs> <laughs> Crossovers are, you know, that's the big thing now. I mean what's, yeah. what's the WandaVision version of uh of this is Martin <laughs> Bonner? I'm not sure. Yeah. Wow. And thank thank you for uh always spreading the word. And I, I can usually, almost always, if I ever see somebody writing about this is Martin Bonner, I can trace it back that they probably watched it because of you. Oh, wow. <laughs> wow. Um, well, that, yeah. Boy, if we had more time, I would I would go tracing that to the people who, who led me to it. Um, but if I remember right, there was something of a whim and just, just pressing play on that. And um, I'm, I'm grateful for whatever led me to that. Uh, uh, Cause I've gone yeah, back I mean, again and again and again. Movies have a, a short shelf life these days, even the big ones. So yeah. um, they need, they need champions and they need uh, people. People need a reason to watch something. So uh, I'm lucky that Morris uh, was distributed by a 24. And so it seems like that one's just going to get watched forever because people are, they love that brand and they, they just, if they go back and they'd watch anything that they've missed from from a24 so that one's that one's lucky but uh but martin bonner yeah like really just needs someone to tell someone else this is a movie that, that's out there well so much of what i watch just feels like more and i'm so grateful for the things that make me feel more human after i watch them more fully human after i watch them i think of your films I'm grateful for Paul Harrell's movies, um, Something Anything and Light from mm-hmm. Light. Um, I had that feeling seeing uh, Nomadland and The Writer. Um, so thank you for what you're doing. It's the, the, the question I've been coming back to for probably three or four years now after I watch a movie is what does this movie love? Um, if, if, you know, you mentioned Lady Bird, if love is attention, mm-hmm. What does this movie love? And your movies consistently for what whatever is happening around them love people, love people's faces, um, uh, love the kinds of things we we only know if we are up close and personal with people, uh, which right now really needs needs to happen for so many reasons. So yeah. uh, thank you so much, Chad, for your work. I can't wait to see what you do next, although I hope you have plenty of time to do it uh, to your <laughs> satisfaction. 
Um, Lady Bird, Lady Bird made me think of um, a quote that I really like, and I think it's Cassavetes, but I'm not entirely sure where he, he says that uh, great art comes from someone's uh, capacity for love and bad art comes from someone's desire to be loved. Right. Yeah. Bad art comes from someone's desire to be loved and great art comes from someone's capacity for love. And Lady Bird, it was so crystal clear how every frame was exuded with Greta's capacity for love and the yeah. love that she had for that world and those characters. And yeah. Um, yeah. so uh, that that seemed like an, an apt quote for what you were describing. Yeah. Well, thanks again for your time. It's great to see you. Um, Thank you. Yeah. Once again, I want to thank Chad Hartigan for being so generous with his time. I'm grateful for his film, Little Fish, and you can find it streaming for rental, at least at the time of this recording, on Amazon, Google Play, YouTube, Voodoo.com, and more. You've been listening to a Master Shot episode of Looking Closer with Jeffrey Overstreet. You can find more than two decades worth of writing on the arts, especially movies, at lookingcloser.org. You can follow me at facebook.com slash lookingcloser. And I'm on Twitter as Overstreet. Both the writing at lookingcloser.org and these recordings are made possible by those readers and listeners generous enough to respond with donations. To learn how you can support Looking Closer, email overstreetlookingcloser at gmail.com that's overstreetlookingcloser at gmail.com you can also dig deeper by picking up a copy of my memoir of dangerous moviegoing a book called through a screen darkly or you can explore my adventures in storytelling by reading the novel aurelia's colors and its three sequels original music for this episode comes from todd fatal a friend of mine since early childhood and half of the band Agents of Future. Look them up at agentsoffuture.bandcamp.com. If you have questions about what you've heard, email overstreetlookingcloser at gmail.com. Until next time, this is Jeffrey Overstreet saying, look closer. I want to know what you see. Closer.